0: Darcy Lange on that Richmond gall Kawasaki gets the jump That's where it all started Big MX Radio brought to you by Meta is on the air Fueled by passion Focused on motocross Fly Racing Bills Pipes W Wheels Motul MX X Brand Goggles Moto Ice Wrap and Moto Stuff make it possible to bring you the news, the interviews, and the point of views inside the sport of motocross. The gate's about to drop on Big MX Radio. Welcome to the Arma Energy Drink Big MX Radio Podcast Show. Brought to you by Fly Racing, X-Brand Goggles, Just One Helmets, Motul MX, Maxima, Spokeskins, and Meta. I am your host, Brad Gebhart. With us on the line, we've got a Georgia legend by the name of Keith Turpin. Keith, how's it going?
1: Doing great. Thanks for asking.
0: Awesome. Uh, glad to have you on the show, and thank you so much for, for giving me some time. Um, I guess we both have to thank uh, Jason Asad for putting this all together.
1: Yeah, Jason's a great guy, man. I've uh, known Jason since like 85 or whatever, and uh, it looks uh, that he's getting back into the, to the industry with his magazine. He's got a great magazine, Meta, and uh, I read it a couple weeks ago, and it's awesome. So, yeah, he's a great guy. I hadn't seen him in a while, but we used to have a lot of fun times together.
0: No doubt, uh, great guy. Great uh, guy to catch up with on a late night phone call right now uh, in Costa Rica. Uh, called him up yesterday, and uh, he was uh, uh, singing me the blues uh, as uh, as he w- was. not uh, uh, apparently Costa Rica not his uh, his scene? But uh, I did offer to uh, to switch him uh, places because uh, I'm up here in uh, Winnipeg, Canada, where uh, the temperatures. Are uh, a little colder, and I just just looked outside to see uh, a full blown uh, blizzard is happening. Uh, about uh, look, looks like uh, we're going to get about three inches of snow tonight. So uh, uh, if if you're listening, Jason, uh, that that offer's still on the table. Uh, we can switch spots at any moment.
1: Three inches of snow you're getting today?
0: Yes, sir. Right now.
1: Wow, uh, uh, it's like seventy degrees here in Atlanta. <laughs>
0: Well, you are a Georgia legend as it were, uh a guy who uh grew up racing and riding in that area and uh basically uh took t- took the uh, the motocross world by storm uh in through uh from from the late 70s uh, in through the early 80s.
1: Well, yeah, I had a uh a pretty good run there for many years but uh just due to some accidents that I had. I didn't have a lot of accidents, I didn't, hardly ever fall over and break an arm or leg when, when I crashed it was something major like total knee reconstruction or spleens or fingers or things like that. So it sort of took a toll on me over the years. And the last incident, when I broke my femur that, uh, was up, up near Canada, we are in Pontiac and, um, they had to wire it back together. And after some downtime, I figured if I was going to walk when I was 40, I'd better call it quit. So. That's what I did, and uh, I just won the Supercross championship and was riding with Factory Suzuki, and I called him and said, i would had enough. Come get the stuff.
0: Fair enough. Well, uh, uh, before we roll all the way through that uh, illustrious uh uh, professional career, which of course did include a uh, a Supercross uh, title in, in the uh, 125 class. Uh, catch us up to speed as far as what you're you're doing now. Uh, what are you doing for work, and uh, whether or not uh, you uh, throw a leg over a motorcycle uh, at, at all uh, throughout uh, throughout your years?
1: Yeah, well now there's there's no dirt bike riding for me or the boys. Uh, the only bikes I ride, I've got two Harleys got a heritage soft tail and uh a uh a fat boy and uh, two boys that rode up to 2013 brian making it as far as the 450a and my youngest son making it to the 250 450b going to loretta's but they they were sort of hit and miss as, as well they were had some great uh, great moments but then they had some low moments as well with the injuries and Brian broke his arm out at uh around texas real bad and he decided he'd had enough and the next weekend brad and i were up at muddy creek qualifying for loretta's and he broke his foot pretty bad and had to have like 13 uh maybe 14 rods and pins put in he said he'd had enough so We've actually been out of the motocross deal since about July of 2013, so nowadays I'm taking up golf and riding my Harleys. My dad and I rode our Harleys from Atlanta to Sturgis, South Dakota for the uh, big fest and uh, just enjoying life right now.
0: Fair enough, and uh, as far as uh, as work goes, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you've uh, come out, come about uh, some uh, some gainful employment since your days as a, as a factory pro.
1: Well, just dealing with the ins and outs of the business, you know. Um, obviously, dealing with employees—that's that's a lot of fun. So we have some great employees, and in fact, both of my sons, Brian and Brad, uh, work with us, and they're they're a great addition to the team and. Uh, you know, the biggest problem that we have is, is collecting money. That cash is king, and that's a, a, a problem that most contractors have because we're on a 30-60 day. So it's right. just cash flow, uh, keeping that cash flowing so that uh, we stay afloat. But it's all good. Everything's real good. I mean, uh, we, uh, we've, we've got a great life.
0: Absolutely, couldn't agree more. Of course, uh, for those who are, are uh, loyal listeners, uh, my dad, a, uh, a a contractor as well, I know all about those. Uh, uh, keeping that flow going and uh, getting paid on a, in July for work that you did in January.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. So it's just flipping cash and staying afloat. Uh, it's it's something that you you've got to be diligent in trying to collect money and. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of the drawbacks of being in the business, but it's a great business to be in. Something I find that's pretty cool about it is you always in the construction field, you find people who do a lot of motorcycle riding, whether it's motocross or hair scrambles or drag racing or car racing or, or whatever. So you meet a lot of interesting people doing what we do, you know, um, all genres of people and, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. A lot of people,
0: um- Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, the only people who can afford uh, the sport are, are uh, people who uh, make the money you can afford it. So uh, construction definitely qualifies.
1: Well, yeah, that's true. But, you know, nowadays, uh, obviously, the sport has is, is grown, but it just costs so much to be involved. Uh, back when I first started racing before I got any rides, I think we were paying like three or $400 for some Yamaha 80s. Now they're like 4000 bucks. Yeah, and, uh, and, and not a whole lot the, different,
0: by the way. <laughs> no, they're
1: not, they're not, and it just, uh, it's getting to the point to where only people that are self-employed that are doing real well are or, or able to, to go to the races, and, and that's what's really hurt the turnouts and, you know, the people getting involved, there's there's not a lot of new people getting involved in the sport, and, and from the point of entry to going all the way to the pro levels, is it's just so expensive.
0: Uh, that's very true hard-pressed to find uh too many trucks at the motocross track that don't have a company uh, uh label on the back window
1: right that's right and you know i wish that uh it was it was it was more feasible for for others to be involved uh that's the way that you get the sport to grow and you can have more participants but you know with bikes crossing you know stop nine thousand bucks and you got to put another five or ten thousand in them to mod them out it's it's rather expensive so uh,
0: let's uh, just go back I to two that, strokes
1: do what now I'm sorry I
0: said, let's just go right back to two strokes uh, let, let, let's do that right now
1: yeah oh, I love two strokes man um, one they they were great bikes they were a little lighter obviously if if you need to put a piston ring in them, you know, you could do that for like 7,500 bucks. Uh, and you, as long as you maintain them, they'd last forever, you know. And oh, exactly. Down,
0: like, I talked to Frank Mann and he said, uh, the only time, uh, like the best thing about two strokes is that every time you're feeling guilty, you just put a, two, you just put a piston in it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's like, you know, a hundred bucks, new chain and uh, sprockets and you're ready to go. And nowadays, I mean, 450 bust up, and you, you've got fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars in repairs, and it's hard to hard to compete with that. You know, with with your someone who's working a regular eight to five job, and uh, it's even hard for for people who own their business. I mean, you know, those things break a lot, so it can get costly for sure.
0: No doubt. Well, uh what's it like working with your sons? Uh I know working with my dad at different ages was uh, uh was difficult for me, but uh we uh would certainly work better now than we ever did. But uh what what what's it like working with your sons before uh uh now they kinda of taking up the uh the your, your the same trade you're doing?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny, they're sort of like third generation, you know, uh my dad and of course my brother and I and now my kids. But uh, it's actually a lot of fun. I really enjoy working with them and teaching the kids. I mean, they're eager to learn. And, you know, even as kids, everybody wanted to play with big excavators and Tonka trucks, and especially what we do at just a much bigger scale. And uh, they operate the excavators and uh, wheel loaders and, and things of that nature. So uh, they're eager eager to learn, and we're having a great time. It's a lot of fun. I enjoy it.
0: That's awesome man well uh, where did this motocross thing start for you um, I understand that uh, you you like your your entire career uh, as a professional wasn't that wasn't that long but uh, you're very very accomplished as an amateur uh, but before you were an accomplished amateur you had to be a uh, a greenhorned uh, beginner so uh, what what kind of bike was that that you started on uh, what fueled that passion for you?
1: Well, you know that's the cool thing about motocross. Everybody starts basically at the same spot, being a, uh, um, you know, a rookie or a novice or whatever. And I started in '74. And how I got started was I saw some motocross uh, guys on their bikes or their bikes on a trailer up at my grandmother's house. And one Sunday afternoon, I was five years old. I talked to my mom into taking me over there to see what was going on. And this was in Northeast Georgia, and we uh, went over there and paid to get in, and I, you know, we checked it out, and I said, "That's something I want to do right there. That looks fun." And uh, that was about June of 1974 uh, is where it got started, and I think I got my first trophy July 7th, 1974, and from then on I was hooked. Uh, I'd started off on uh, MR50, a Honda MR50 and raced those for, you know, a year or two here, and then, you know, just progressed on up, and uh, really, I was had, had a, a lot of natural talent, you know, doing it. Um, progressed into the 60s back then, you know. Most people nowadays don't don't know, but back then, Yamaha and Honda and Kawasaki and Suzuki and everybody made 60s, and uh, went yeah. out to... The uh, GNC in Houston, Texas, at the Astrodome, and won that championship on the RM60 in like '77 or so, and that's how it got started. You know, we uh, just started basically locally, and then doing races regionally, and then then we started participating in national events. And uh, uh, I really enjoyed it. Race race with a lot of cool people, met a lot of cool people, and. Ended up winning Tonka and Loretta's and, uh, well, not Loretta's. It wasn't Loretta's until 82. But back then, the AMA traveled from site to site each year, like they had it at Des Moines, Iowa, one year. One year they had it at Brownsville, Pennsylvania. One year they had it at Rowan Hills in North Carolina, actually in 91. In 92 is when Loretta started, uh, or the AMA started, uh, the 26 or 27 year spread with the championship now, you know? Yeah. But I won those and we had a Kawasaki's here in Atlanta or the Eastern part and
0: Dave Jordan,
1: uh, signed me and Billy Lyles.
0: The first two Kawasaki riders. Do what? To be the first two Kawasaki riders. That's pretty cool. We were the first two
1: team green riders in history. Right. And, uh, we, uh, you know, back then, people were riding Yamaha and Suzuki. Nobody wanted to ride a Kawasaki, and at the time, you know, they seemed like pretty good bikes to me, and someone's willing to sponsor you and give you all your bikes and everything for free, then, you know, you take it. So we took it and ran with it and won Panka and one up in Brownsville, Pennsylvania and won some races out in uh, Saddleback at the World Mini Grand Prix, and... So it just, you know, it just started to grow from there. And, of course, I just love competing and racing. But I also enjoyed being around the people. You meet some of the best people, you know, around the world doing doing motocross, people that you may compete with, but if your chain breaks or you need something, they're willing to help you. So we enjoyed it, and it was a great family atmosphere and uh, yeah. got to meet a lot of people. And, of course, you know, we always knew on – thursday or so where we were going racing and um so it just grew from there and then you know basically into uh, winning some of the bigger events as a pro uh you know back then in the 80s you could ride uh pro events and amateur events as a pro-am and doing well with some of those so it was you know just a great time to be being involved Supercross supercrossing got started and my hero Bob Hanna was, was doing really well, and the, the industry itself was exploding with new riders and new talent, so it was awesome to be around in that time.
0: Um, so, uh, with uh, a lot of success as an amateur, definitely uh, you'd become uh, quite polarizing, whether whether it be uh, at uh, local events or uh, or, or national. Uh, was there any rivals that you had, or guys that uh, you battled closely with? And uh, were there any ever any protests or uh, um, seizing of bikes, or uh, like accusations of cheating, or anything like that?
1: Well, yeah, the local level back then, there was always accusations of cheating. I remember one time, uh, I was riding an 80 and, and, you know, back then people not only, uh, were scrounging, to get their money together to go race and stuff, but, uh, I can't remember exactly where we were in Georgia, but it was here and it got protested because they thought I was cheating. Because my dad uh, had created a company called Turpin Racing Performance, and he built motors for a lot of people and myself. And I can remember that uh, after the protests, they came up protesting, and we, of course, were legal. Uh, they, back then, uh, the fee was $25. And you know, they bought it, uh, they brought the $25 up and rolled coins and what have you. And my dad felt sorry for him. And he said, well, I'm going to give them their money back. And my mom stepped in. Now said, no, that's my baby's money. He gets that money. So I remember that. <laughs> uh, I thought that was pretty funny. You know, there's certain things that you remember over the years. But as far as rivalries, yeah, you know, we, I always had some. There were some great guys around Georgia uh, that I raced with. As I started uh, riding bigger bikes, you got guys like Mark Crozier, and then up, up up north you had um Rodney Barr and south you had uh Ronnie Tishner. Uh I raced with Ronnie Tishner basically since we were on fifties. And uh he and I, you know, we were friends off the track but great competitors on the track. So yeah, you know, there was always some type of competition somewhere. Uh we we didn't always race locally. I mean we did District Nine races. We did District Twenty Nine races up in North Carolina. Of course, back then you had the uh, Florida Winter AMs, and you had Gatorbacks, and the Mini Os. Back when we were doing the Mini Os, the Mini Os consisted of flat track, TT scrambles, hair, hair scrambles, and the motocross. Yeah. So,
0: how are the TT pretty- scrambles on a on a, a Kawasaki Eighty?
1: Oh, it was awesome. It was in Ocala and, uh, we would do the flat track, you know, and basically you've got different disciplines of racing. People who are flat trackers would try to race motocross and that was hilarious. They looked like a fish out of water and us motocrossers would go over there and try to flat track. You know, we would take our front brake off and our front fender off and think we were flat trackers and those guys would go flying past us, and and you know uh, we finished fourth or fifth or something like that. But it was just a great experience that uh, a lot of generations don't don't get to experience. You know, now they have just supercross and motocross uh, at the O's, which they have a great time down there. But uh, you know, back in the the late '70s and early '80s, when you did all four disciplines, that was awesome.
0: Yeah, it's just a little bit different now, for sure. Uh, or like yeah. they've kind of uh, specialized it, like as the sports get get more more serious, one way or another, uh, they, the the discipline start to separate. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a shame they don't have that anymore because it seems it sounds like something that uh, you uh, kind of relish in and enjoy. That's uh, um, not like the kids these days don't they don't get to experience that. That's too bad.
1: That's right, well, and also you know with with the time that I started from the seventies uh into you know late seventies, early eighties into the nineties before I actually got out of racing, but um they you know we they didn't have so many classes it, it wasn't so what we we laugh about now, calling to correct, you know, if you raced a one twenty five there was like a a in a B class. You decide. They went in a a C and a D and a beginner. And if you raced uh, 85s, there was like the junior mini, 7 to 11, and the senior mini, 12 to 14. And local races, we could start at 9 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning. We'd be done at 3 o'clock, 3 or 4 o'clock. It was a great way to spend time and Uh, you know, we could compete over in Alabama and Georgia and Florida and South Carolina, Tennessee, and you didn't spend a whole day there or nowadays it's Saturday and Sunday and then you'd be back home in the evening. So, uh, I think one thing that's really got quite frustrating to a lot of people is all the different classes that the promoters try to engage in now to make sure that everybody's covered because of a lot of the parents saying, well, my kid's not qualified or, you know, he's a C rider. He shouldn't have to ride with the A riders. Well, back then we didn't have that. If you were a C rider, your goal was to be an A rider. Well, you needed to ride with the, you needed to ride with the faster guys to get better. So I think a lot of that has changed over the years, you know, but the, yeah, the it's probably all good where, uh,
0: Sorry to interrupt you there, but like the, the sandbagging where you have guys in the, 250 B class turning faster lap times than the 450 A class.
1: That's right. That's right. That's, I mean, th- those guys should be in the 450 A class, right?
0: You know, Even if but, they ride a 250, they should still be in, in the 450 A class. Like they're, uh, you got, like, I'm, I'm sorry, but Austin Faulkner should not be in the, uh, should not have been a B class rider last year. First year on the 250 right. or not. <laughs> like,
1: well, and see, Back then, when we, we were racing, you know, it's always remember when, remember when. In 83, um, I won Loretta's in the uh, 85,
0: 14 to 15. Modified.
1: And I, pardon me?
0: In the modified division. You in the modified
1: and class, and yeah. And I got second in the stock class. But I went straight from that to the 125A. I didn't go into the B class, or well, I couldn't go in the C class. I went straight to the A class because I knew eventually that's where I wanted to be. So rather than going and and winning the B class and what have you, I needed to sow my oats in the A class and get beat. And I was racing with guys like Billy Lyles and uh, uh, Rodney Barr and Carol Richardson and some of these guys that were just fast that that I couldn't beat. But in time, I started beating them because I grew, I think, faster by riding the A-class, and I gained a lot more experience. uh,
0: Absolutely. Doesn't that sounds oddly familiar to uh, Keith? Bo, another Keith, Keith Bowen, who uh, he a Michigan guy, but did the exact yep. same thing. Went straight to the A class. His dad says, uh, "You're going to get your ass handed to you for the first uh, couple of years, but uh, within that's a couple right. of years, you're going to uh, have that uh, that experience and that uh, that chip on your shoulder from getting beat, and uh, you're going to figure out a way to get around these guys." And uh, yeah, to, that's c- exactly cer- right. That, yeah, that um, certainly paid off for both of you.
1: Yeah, Uh, he you know Keith's a little older than I am, but back when we were racing, we were great friends. He rode with Team Yamaha, and uh, we would catch you know rides to to the track and stuff like that, and we hung out, uh, you know, not not every day or what have you, but we were we were pretty good friends. He was a great guy, and I always looked up to him, you know, because I was a little younger, and when I was riding 80s, he was riding 125s, and he was a great rider. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Button former factory supercross rider you're listening to the big mx radio show we're going to take it to a commercial and we'll be right back
0: when it's time to turn heads spokeskins has you covered whether it's dirt bikes street bikes or bicycles nobody does it better than spokeskins mix and match your spokes or go with the same color all the way around either way spokeskins is the way to go to customize the look of your bike uniting off-road riders on every end of the budget spectrum, Spokeskins is aimed at giving you the custom look without the custom price tag. If you're looking to set your bike apart from the rest of the herd, turn some heads, and be able to change your bike's look on the fly, head to Spokeskins.net. They don't just have Spokeskins on their website, they've got more. New products are being added all the time, like the Motul Slacker Digital Sag Scale, and just recently for Off-Road Series, Rear Brake Lines, Oversized Rotor Kit, and Front Brake Lines as well. So do what I did, head to spokeskins.net today, place your order, and get set up to turn some heads out there. Spokeskins, we've got you covered. If there's one item to be picky about, it's choosing the right helmet. I'm Andrew Short, and I choose the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. You, too, can wear the exact same helmet I wear, Trey Kennard wears, Jimmy Alberson wears, and many others. The F2 Carbon is a helmet loaded with details that make a huge difference in comfort and safety. Lightweight materials, phenomenal airflow, and a super comfortable, sweat-absorbing liner, and generous eye port design to accommodate any goggle choice or just a few. And did I mention how super-trick these helmets look? Straight off the shelf and onto the racetrack. If you are looking for one amazing helmet, look no further than the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. For more information about Fly Helmets and other products from Fly Racing, visit them on the web at flyracing.com. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, you better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with Oats and Bran. Oats and Bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. For extreme kids like us. These amigos. That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey, kids! Start out every morning with a fat ball. In motocross, everyone wants one common thing: to simply enjoy the ride. Sand, clay, loam, or concrete, and everything in between. Riders all want to be able to enjoy their ride. But today is arena cross. Tomorrow is Glen Helen, and Saturday we're heading to this gnarly sand track. How can we be sure our suspension is always dialed in? For most, employing a full-time practice technician is unrealistic, and even for those who have one, setting suspension is still a chore. Get a measuring tape, scratch a mark on the fender or rear number plate, and attempt some backward math to find 105mm. Does this tape even have millimeters on it? Forget that. Head to Motul.co today and set your sag every time you ride with the Slacker Digital Sag Scale. Let's hear from Johnny Kaspear himself on how this thing works. So uh, really basically you would just uh, stick it on your axle with the magnet, stick the clip on your side plate basically where the arc of the axle would hit the side plate and then
1: Pull out the retractable cable, hook it to the clip, and turn it on, and then just take the bike off the stand and and take a measurement.
0: It's that easy. Trust tuning your suspension to Johnny K. Spear and Motul MX. and I want you guys in a set of W wheels. So do what I did, and head to d-u-b-y-a-u-s-a today. W-U-S-A, all things wheels. What's up guys? It's time to talk a little bit about Roy Borden Race. He's the performance specialist. Suspension, making a motor work, balancing a bike, or just maintenance.
1: Hey, this is Alex Ray. I don't know if it's why you're listening to Brad's podcast, but I'll be back on soon.
0: Who are some of the riders that you uh, looked up to in Georgia? There had to have been uh, a couple of uh, local phenoms that uh, certainly uh, before, uh, this is long before the internet, and I know you you'd, uh, looked up to uh, Hurricane Hannah, but uh, I know when I was a kid, uh, I was pretty sure that the local guys at my track uh, twisted the throttle better than anybody.
1: Oh, yeah, there were several, especially when I was riding 80s, you know, and or even 50s. Uh, back then, you know, of course, there wasn't any training facilities, and my dad had never raced, so the way that I learned to, to get faster was by watching the faster riders and imitating what they did, even though I was on a 50 or whatever, but, of course, you had Billy Lyles, uh, who who went on to ride Refector Kawasaki, and then the GPs and what have you, and you had some other guys like Lance Newsome and Marvin McDaniels and Joe Rogers. And, uh, you know, the list just goes on and on. There were fast guys, Brad Wallace, uh, that, that, uh, a lot of those guys rode pro, uh, later down the road. Um, but they were fun to watch. And if I wasn't racing, I was sitting down watching the fast riders to see what they were doing that, maybe I could imitate them and, and get better as well. And, uh, of course, we had a lot of great tracks, too, that we raced on around here that I think was very important in shaping my riding skills and what have you. You know, a lot of people are limited but with their riding tracks, but we had great tracks like Road Atlanta and uh, down here. We had the AM, uh, AMA 125-250 National Atlanta International Raceway, burnt hickory, places like that that they had a lot of nationals at, that we got to ride on those tracks. And I could go watch Tannen, Smith, and what have you, uh, Kent Howerton, you know, those guys back in the day. that I would go watch everybody and just watch what they were doing and try to uh, imitate it and, and and do the best I can. And that's, that's how I taught myself to ride.
0: Well, there you go. And so at w- what point uh, d- during your uh, amateur career that uh, you felt like uh, you're going to be able to do this, um, uh, like maybe go professional at this, uh, ride it at, at the highest level and, and still be successful? Um, like Clearly, you, you had a, a lot of res- uh, good results at, at Ponca, at World Mini, as well as uh, Loretta's, um, given the fact that you were in... Uh, looks like six six different uh, you had, uh, six chances at a title in at Loretta's. You won one of them, but uh, three of the other times you ended up second.
1: Yes, but uh, what you have to consider too with that is uh, I won it in eighty in eighty one. I was out. I had total reconstruction of the knee, so I didn't ride Ponca or Loretta's. In eighty two, I was in Ponca the same year that. Uh, I'd won a few classes the same year that the Suzuki riders were killed. Uh, Rick and and Bruce Bunch. I got my fingers cut off, uh, for a freak accident. Right. I had my index finger and my thumb cut off at Ponca city and I wasn't able to ride Loretta. So I missed it. 80, 80 and 81. I won wanted 80 and 83. Those were the two years. And then 84 In 85, I finished second both times. So I had a pretty good run at Loretta's. But to answer your question, when did I think that I was going to be able or when did I want to to do this as a job? I knew early on, like when I was eight or nine, that this racing motorcycles was what I wanted to do. I loved it. Uh, I loved the competition. I just loved racing motorcycles, and I knew that's what I wanted to do when I got older was to be a professional motocrosser like Bob Hanna or Marty Smith or some of those guys. So it it didn't, I didn't have dreams of being a fireman and a racer or anything. I was, uh, I was dead set. I was going to be a professional motocross racer.
0: So as, as that started to creep even closer, obviously, uh, the knee was a huge setback and, uh, Getting uh, your your fingers gnarled up uh, had to have uh, put some questions uh, in in your mind as far as that goes. But uh, um, when did things really start to click for you as far as uh, getting support to make that switch to uh, the 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 professional ranks? And uh, most would be shocked to hear that you didn't make your uh, your your pro debut or your switch on uh, on Kawasaki's.
1: Yeah, well, uh, how that sort of transpired is. You know, going back to what we were talking about earlier with the injuries and what have you, 1981 and 82 and part of, well, 1981 and 82, I had three major accidents, uh, total knee reconstruction. I started back riding. Two months later, I, I fell and the handlebars, hit me in the stomach, ruptured my spleen. I was out for a couple months. We go to Ponca City, I'm back on track, and then my fingers. So that was, you know, three accidents within basically a year, Yeah, uh, a year and a few serious months. Serious
0: ones, too. Like, and, uh, uh, you don't sprain ankles.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what I'm saying. I, I, I hardly ever broke an arm or anything when a crash. It was something pretty serious. So at that moment, I took some time off, and I was like, yeah, you know, I really want to do this. It's it's pretty dangerous, but I just my passion forward and my love for the sport. So we kept going, and... Um, we had a, you know, a pretty good run from then on, winning uh, a lot of races. And then when basically I switched over to Honda, Dave Arnold was running the, the Honda Pro team, and he had been after us for a while to, uh, to come to Honda. And when we switched, we went right into the Pro Support and started running the 125A at, uh, in Florida at the Florida uh, Winter Series. And you know, I learned real quick where I was, and things progressed, and we just basically planned for for me to move right on into the to the uh, Supercross. I started. I rode four Supercrosses in '85, and I was still an amateur, and I did some Outdoor Nationals, and led uh, Dallas to the last lap and crashed, and the guy up north. Uh, Eddie Warren won it. Uh, so I knew that I had the speed and, and things were going good. Uh, and then we did uh, the 86 championship with Honda. Uh, and things were going a really good road to outdoor and and uh, did real well with, with a lot of races, a lot, a lot of top 10 finishes in outdoors and the 125s. And of course, we moved on to uh, Suzuki in 87. And in 87, uh, had a great year, won four or five supercrosses, but, I DNS in Dallas that, uh, if the one moment that I could go back and change in history, I would have finished that race somehow because I ended up losing the championship to Ronnie Kishner by one point, oh. even though I won four or five races. Uh, so that was, that was a heartbreak, but a lesson learned and. Of course, we moved right on into 88 and running um, with Stillwoods Factory Suzuki, running the Supercrosses and uh, 250 Supercross and 125 Outdoor Nationals and had a couple of really bad get-offs moving up to the big bike and in the 250 class and broke my ankle. And then I came back after breaking my ankle out in California to pontiac and i can't i think it was the first night in pontiac you know pontiac ran like saturday and sunday
0: yeah it was. and a heat
1: race i was racing with johnson or some of those guys and jeff Ward. It was top top three or four and you come out of the stands and hit that triple um the the soil was so bad that it was grooved out in my, my my feet bottomed out on the dirt and it just pitched me off i was doing a a Superman before Superman was cool, and when I landed, I snapped my femur in half, and that's that's pretty much how the career went to right there. And it, I mean, you know, with with the injuries, we still had a great time, and a lot of a lot of a lot of people and sponsors were obviously great. My sponsors were really good, Oakley and Fox and Suzuki, and you know those those were the core guys, but. Uh so after that I just took some time to think about what I was really going to do in the future Fair enough. with with myself.
0: Well you you'd mentioned uh Pontiac. So uh, that's in 88 one year prior to that uh you found yourself the top step of the podium the first night. Uh a, a much different scenario uh one one year one year later.
1: That's right. Yeah, in 87 I won the first night at Pontiac and The second night, uh, that's a good start and went down in the first turn and um, somehow ended up last and front fender was broke, flapping in the air and uh, came back to uh, all the way to second within like two seconds of Tishner. Tishner won that night, so maybe within another lap or so I may have been able to get him, but who knows, that's the way it ended. So I ended up second, you know second's not bad and uh with with that competition uh so yeah just a year later I go from a first and a second to you know uh a great ride going and then end up breaking my femur and laying in the hospital in Pontiac for about uh three or four days for sure
0: that's incredible. Um, I, I, it's the, the story of your career, like a, a career that didn't last nearly long enough. I feel like it's a lot very reminiscent of a lot of uh, young athletes that uh, we don't get to see uh, them uh, maybe realize their true potential. But uh, uh, having the opportunity to win some races is uh, is something that many riders can never say. And uh, as far as that 87 title is concerned, uh, they can't take that one away from you, no way.
1: Well, yeah, it was good. You know, um, of course, I watched Supercross here. I was laughing the other night, uh, and it's probably not the right thing to do, but me and my kid sitting around drinking a beer, and I think uh, the kid who won, he rides the Husky, um, what's his name, Martin Martin Davalos. Yeah. Uh, He won one of the races. I can't remember, you know, uh, I don't know if he won Daytona or he won one other than Atlanta. And that was like the first race he'd won in 70 races or something like that. Uh, You know, riding riding the 250 class. And, of course, I won um, like eight or nine in a two-year span, and there was only like 12 total races. So uh, we were laughing about how long his career had lasted. In the 250 class, and you know, that maybe he would ride the 450s next year, but uh, back then when we were right, do what right now?
0: He doesn't have to. The uh, with that, with the injury that he had last year, uh, with the I believe he had Epstein Barr or something, something kept yeah. him out last year that didn't allow him to race. So he's he's good to go for next year, he can uh, he can race 250s for uh, the end of, till the end of time
1: that's that's crazy, because what happened with us, me and, of course, Tishner and A. Warren and the guys that were on it, you, you pointed out. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't know how you don't point out in 71 races, but anyways, um, you know, uh, I had won eight or nine or whatever, and then moved up to the 250 class, and that's, that's fine. I mean, that's where I wanted to be anyways. Uh, I was riding with with guys, I mean, uh, some of my heroes, of course, Hannah and Johnny O'Mara and Ricky Johnson and all those guys. They were just, you know, it was awesome to be there. In fact, I, in the fall of '87, I went out and stayed with Johnny O for about uh, two months, living with him in California before we went to do some Supercross races in Japan and rode at his. Personal track and things like that. Maybe, maybe not two months, maybe a month. But he was just a great inspiration, uh, a great mentor. And uh, the kids and I saw him out in Las Vegas a year or so ago, walking the track. And we were talking about the great times we had at the Suzuki factory in Japan, and he was telling my kids about it. And it. It's always great when I have my kids with me, and I walk up and I see these guys, I start talking with them they'll always tell my kids some type of story. Emmick had done it and O'Mara had done it. So I enjoy that part because my kids, to my kids, I'm just dad. And yeah. that's all I want to be. That's that's more important than anything, just being dad, you know, but uh, to hear these other guys tell it, that, that you know, I was I was a little crazy on the motorcycle.
0: For sure. Well, you, you want to be dad, but you also want to be a uh, badass dad, so uh, that, that yeah, definitely
1: helps. Yeah, well... <laughs> uh, I've never sort of went down that path. I've, I've always been a little bit humble when it comes to that. Out, they'll figure it out. You know, I don't have to tell them how great dad was, or I uh, don't. We don't have a lot of trophies hanging up around here. I don't have a trophy room. Or um, you know, with my supercross trophies and stuff, they they'll figure that out one day. But I just want to be dad to them.
0: I hope that you have a, a, a particular set of uh, pink motocross gear uh, somewhere in your house.
1: I have a what? What kind of motocross gear?
0: Some pink motocross gear. Pink. Pink. Yeah. You. Uh, I. I know. Uh, um, J, Jason. Jason Assad had mentioned that uh, there was there was some pink gear that you wore at a particular race. I can't remember exactly what he had mentioned, but it was either pink fox gear or pink. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, there's there's all kind of stuff. I have uh, pink gear and zebra fox gear and all that stuff that was cool and neons back in the '80s. I, I have that. Uh, in fact, um, when the kids got a little older and they were riding, uh, I talked I taught talk the kids into wearing some of my pants. Fortunately, you know, they're not in style now. Well, they're probably coming back in style now, but four or five years ago. We'd be out riding, have my kids on 250 or 450, and they have get like Fox Factory gear from 1986 and 87 and stuff. It looked cool. Uh, and nowadays, you can buy the retro Fox gear stuff. Yes, sir. Uh, I think they'd come back out a couple years ago
0: no doubt and uh those uh, that stuff is uh it it was it was um revolutionary it was it it was um it honestly that stuff is probably coming back into being cool now uh and uh it'd be uh incredible to uh to to take a look at some of that stuff and uh, some of the materials that were used um what was the the practice scene like for you uh as as a, a young rider coming up and uh being almost uh, like a, I wouldn't say a supercross specialist, but definitely showing some serious skills as a supercross rider, knowing that back then there really wasn't a whole lot of um, of supercross tracks, or like there there just wasn't supercross tracks like there like they have today. Like I'm sure your sons have spent more time on legit practice supercross tracks than you ever did.
1: That's right. Yeah, back back when you know we first got in, I uh, first got into the supercross. Uh some of my riding partners were just uh buddies, local buddies that could go with me, you know. Um obviously we, we didn't have a uh a team here in, in Atlanta. I mean, we are all factory riders, me and Tishner and of course you had Surratt and Schmidt and George Holland and all that, but I was based out of Atlanta. We didn't I didn't stay in California a lot. I I went to California when we were testing. But uh I rode here in Atlanta. I had uh several tracks and up until uh, about 86, uh, middle of 86, 87, I didn't have a Supercross track. I rode on whatever I could ride on. And uh, nowadays we joke about it because back when, when I was riding, uh, you know, nowadays all the kids want a prep track that's perfect and what have you. Well, if we wanted to ride when it wasn't dusty, we'd go right after it rained or uh just natural terrain tracks uh didn't have a lot of jumps in them and what have you but in about uh somewhere around 86 late 86 middle of 86 i had a uh, i hired a guy to build me a supercross track that uh over to friend's house i had about 15 acres and that's where i rode i'd ride with my friend there bill earl whose property it was and i'd ride with uh uh, Lance Newsome and Billy Lyles uh, and Deuce Williamson, guys like that. Billy lived about 30 minutes south of me. He had a track down in Jackson, Georgia, a supercross track, and we'd go down there and ride. But there, there wasn't a lot of team training unless uh, I was in California testing with with Team Suzuki and, and things of that nature. Uh, I did a lot of it. Most of it was, was individually done.
0: Uh was there was there ever any time where uh you had a chance to uh spin some laps with a young Jason Assad chasing each other around and uh most likely uh uh chasing him down in rapid fashion and uh maybe giving him a tap along uh, as, as he come as you went by?
1: Oh yeah, we did that did that quite quite a bit. You know, Jason those guys when they moved from California, they were here and uh Jason was riding the B class or what have you, but we'd go out and practice, uh, even in you know on a Sunday morning practice or whatever. And that was one of the things I always liked to do with my friends. if, if I went by him or something like that, we'd go into a turn and I'd grab his arm or something like that. They looked over me like I was crazy. But uh, uh, one of the my favorite things to do was, and uh, and it pissed a lot of people off, especially my guys that were riding with me. is, they put all their fresh graphics and fresh numbers on, and and I would ride, I would chase them a lot, and we'd go into turns, and I'd put my front fender, front tire on their their uh, stickers and rub them off and things of that nature, and it piss them off. But we had a great time, and one of the best times that I ever had, one of the funniest times was when I met, I had actually not, I met Jason earlier, but we were doing a local race, and Jason had drove his I think it was this Camaro up to the races and he had these boom boom speakers in the back and Yeah. Uh, that's
0: cool, I walked Jason. Over.
1: Yeah. Uh I heard this Bon Jovi going and I walked over there, me and somebody, and in between motors or whatever, and we're like, Dude, what are you doing? What's going on? And he turned up uh what did he what was what was that uh Bon Jovi song?
0: Living on a
1: Prayer. Uh, no, I wasn't living on a prayer. It was uh, wanted dead or alive. Or uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You, um, you, you you give love a bad name.
0: Yeah, you yeah. You give yeah, love.
1: Yeah. And he turned it up. And I think he had some tens or twelves in his Camaro, and you know we were just had all the little hot chicks around us or whatever. And uh, man, we were we were the we were the the bomb then. You know, at the motocross track. Jason's got a stereo wide open, and we thought we were somebody. You know, that was funny. yeah know, I still talk about that this day. I remember that. Uh, that was up in Ball Ground, Georgia. Uh, the guy who runs that track, or who ran that track is, uh, I'm sure you've heard of Kevin Kelly. Yes, He sir. does a lot of announcing and stuff. His dad uh, was King Kelly. Okay. Uh, that's, that, that was his track up there in Ball Ground, Georgia. But in... Uh, you know, Jason's dad, a uh, cool guy, and uh, we we also had um, uh, another friend, Jack Preacher, that we sort of hung out with, and Blue Etheridge, and, you know, we, we just had, you know, it was a great time back in the 80s, racing motorcycles.
0: And some pretty girls around. You know what? I said, and some pretty girls around as well.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, the pretty girls, man, That, that that's always cool to have. you know uh back then you had a lot of people show up at the races you know you could not afford it
0: no doubt um what would uh, professional racing have been like uh in uh, 1986 if uh you had uh, monster energy girls and uh yourself and maybe uh uh, bob hannah running around uh
1: well hannah was a lot of fun i I hung out with with him some but I laugh with my kids now and my wife. I've been married to my wife for 25 years. She and I started first grade, so she's got a great sense of humor, you know, about it, too. But I would tell my kids, like, man, if Dad was lined up on the start line and that monster chick come out with that 30-second board, I'm, I'd probably click it in the second gear and jump the gate. And they'd start laughing. You know, we just you didn't have things like that. It had been a lot different, for sure, because back then we were uh, not as polished as they are now. Uh, I mean, we, you know, you want a super you were, you were kissing a trophy girl. Yes, sir. And, uh, yeah, I would have, I would have probably went extra hard there to win a few of them with Diana Dahlgren as the trophy girl.
0: Couldn't. Yeah. I, I, there's, I think there's one, there's a, a picture of, uh, of, Bob Hanna carrying one of them off the podium like he's like he's got her over his shoulder yeah, as if he's gonna carry right. her off. <laughs> like you just would not see Cooper Webb scoop up uh, uh, Juliana Daniel or uh, or or um, Dan right. yeah. and uh, and carry them off into the to the night. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> otherwise, they're being that's what I
1: was we, we were my wife said we were, we were not as polished and. Yeah, after we just won a, a main event or whatever, we were expecting a kiss from somebody. Yeah. And uh and
0: not Keith McCarty.
1: That's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh you know, we had tours involved back then a lot of Miller and it, it was just a lot of fun. Uh it was it was a much different time. It's not as polished and of course with all the T V stuff, you know, of course you gotta, gotta make it clean and 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 good for everybody, but you know, if a Hannah would have won or well of course when I won mine, you know, the, the eight times or nine times that I won the events, I, I kiss me a trophy girl.
0: There you go. Well that I I'm I'm happy to hear that, my friend. It's uh it's a That's it's right. a, that is a lost art. Um I, I would love for even even as a gag for a guy like uh um uh Cooper Webb, he's got a brash kid like that to, uh, like, clear it with the, the, the trophy girl uh, ahead of time, but uh, yeah. to just lay, lay one on one of those ladies That's because right. uh, the kids these days, they just never seen it.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah, that would be fun.
0: I'm you sure know, it would uh, be fun. It looks like fun. <laughs> yeah,
1: be, be entertaining, too.
0: No doubt. So, uh, do you, do you, uh, keep on top of these riders at all now? I, I'm assuming that uh, there's, there's plenty of them that you, uh, you know, to also watched kind of growing up and, uh, and racing against your boys as well.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, um, uh, back when my kids started riding, I was, uh, a lot, a lot of parents had their kids getting started back in it and what have you. And, uh, the kids used to do a lot of riding with Zach Bell and Chase Bell. Uh kids have spent a lot of time down at uh, their place in because I raced with their dad Chuck and uh you know, Chuck had had the place down there that Zach and and Chase and they have several people that would come over and train with them. So uh the kids were friends with them and they would go down and ride with those guys and of course uh you know, like another guy and think about, Christian Craig. I grew up racing with his dad, Mike Craig, and I've seen him. And, um, of course, I'm still friends with Willie Surratt and his son, Ryan Surratt, who's, who's, who's doing real well. So uh, those are just to name a few. But I see people all the time, And back when we were doing it, and they're kids. And uh, we just sit down and strike up a conversation and talk about the good old days and where it's going and how much it costs and, you know, what the kids are putting into it. You know, every every now and then uh, you, you'd sit down and talk about uh, the pros and cons of all the uh, – it seems now that all the kids go to the training facilities. Well, you know, back when we were racing, all those guys were doing really good, but they didn't attend any training facilities. You no, didn't have sure. that aspect of it, you know.
0: Well, it's, it's a totally different approach to racing at all. Like uh, back when when you were ripping up the uh, the amateur scene, or even as a professional, um, gate drops were were encouraged. It, that was just the name of the game: get as many rides as you can under your belt, so that you can develop racecraft and develop your speed, race against all kinds of uh, of, of competitors, and 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 that's how it, it was. That's just how it was done. And there was a lot of guys. In fact, there's a local. Uh, um, pro by the name of Lawrence Ham, who said he he paid for his first house, uh, for the with the money that uh, he bought by racing fair races and like these kids nowadays they go to the trap practice facilities, they run five five uh, gallons of gas through the bike every single day and then uh, they race uh, minios maybe amateur the Ricky Carmichael amateur supercross and Loretta's that's it.
1: Yeah, they race three or four times a year. And, uh, that's not the way I was brought up racing and exactly what you said. I mean, we, we raced, uh, you know, Saturday or Sunday, almost every weekend. And it was important to go race and, and compete with different competitors. You know, that's why we would race in the district nine, Georgia, or we go up and race in the Carolinas and you always had fast kids up there that I raced with, uh, it Damon Bradshaw was a little younger, but he was a great rider. And you had Todd Harrell and Rodney Barr and, and some of those guys that were, they were a little older, but it was just great competition. And we go to Florida and race and I'd race with Tishner and, and some of those guys down there. So we traveled to go race with the different competitors and we would do that weekly. And all of us became friends doing it, and the families were friends. I mean, we were competitors on the track, but we were friends off the track. And uh, that's the one thing that motocross has has really lost is the camaraderie of the families week in, week out. Because you don't have that a lot. I mean, a lot of tracks are closing because they're not getting the you know, they're not getting the riders because the riders are riding, like you said you know, three or four races a year and the rest are training. So that's, that's going to draw back to the promoter side of it for sure.
0: Oh, totally. And I, I can't, uh, imagine that it doesn't hurt the, the riders professional careers like, um, um, they get to the they get to the uh, the professional ranks and they've only been racing three or four times a year or five times a year for the last X number of years, maybe two three years. All of a sudden, okay, now we got to race uh, twelve nationals uh, and uh, eight to uh, seventeen supercrosses. Go.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah their their body's not in position to do that, and uh, that that is a drawback. But. Uh,
0: like you I, know, I just feel bad for guys like Zach Bell. Like you just can't can't stay healthy.
1: Yeah, he he uh that that was uh, that has been an issue with with him. I mean he's probably one of the fastest kids I've ever seen. Uh he got great parents and got a great team behind him, but it just seems like when he crashes, he's brittle.
0: Yeah. You he's know just break.
1: and and uh
0: well, very muscular
1: yeah, well, he's a little guy, that's for sure. maybe he should have been a jockey or something well, but, but the uh, thing is is
0: that Carmichael was a little guy too. He was just a little nugget of muscle, though,
1: yes, yeah, he was thick though and and zach uh is is very muscular, but he's just thin and uh you know i don't I don't know if if there's a professional medical term for it or whatever it just seems like every time he hit the ground he was breaking something and it is so hard to come back uh, not only as an amateur uh, because I've done it many a times but as a professional as well when those guys are riding the five gallons of tank uh, of gas through the tank a day and you're laid up for four months five months to come back and compete, and then you compete for a month or two, and something else happens. It's it's very hard to do that, and it's it's very hard on your mind to keep keep coming back at that level. And sometimes you just like, well, you know, maybe I need to move on and do something else. Uh, I've seen a lot of people with a lot of talent walk away from it.
0: Of exactly. A guy like yourself, a guy who um, many would, uh, like would first of all, only dream of having the sex success that you had during your career, but uh, nevertheless, um, leaving a lot earlier than most would, would consider. And I guess uh, a lot of that had to do with the severity of inner injuries and uh, the fact that uh, recon- reconstructive knee surgery in 1981 isn't exactly the same as reconstructive knee surgery in 2016.
1: Right. That's right. And and to think that I was 12 years old when I ha- it happened and my whole career had to deal with it from then on. But uh, I thought it was ironic back uh, a year or so ago that Davey Coombs in Racer X was asked the question was what was the three most surprising retirements that he had ever witnessed uh, throughout his career? Because I used to race with Davey and his brother, Tim, and I knew his dad uh, dad was a great person know his mom and everybody you know we, we grew up with with that generation of people but his top three guys for uh the uh retirement was myself george holland and damon bradshaw the first time it was the three most shocking retirements that he could recall and it did shock a lot of people but uh, you know i've been through a lot and I I sort of weighed the good with the bad. I mean, I've been all over the world racing motorcycles, uh, you know, from Japan to France to Switzerland, and I had a good run. Um, I had a real good run, won a lot of races, won a lot of amateur nationals, won eight or eight or nine uh, supercross races. Uh, I I didn't get to the point where I wanted to, but I'd had a pretty good run, you know, and yeah, uh, I thought it was maybe best t- for for me to just walk away and and go on with my life because people have a hard time with making that transition, and I even had a hard time. I, all I'd ever known was racing motorcycles, uh, and uh, but there is life after motocross, and God, you is. have to pick up on and move on, and and uh, I actually enjoyed getting back in with my kids the the bad part about the kids racing were when they would get hurt. It's a lot different when you're racing and you get hurt, but to see your kids get hurt and they're laying there with a broke arm or a broke leg and all that, it, that really tugs on your heart. And I'm I'm talking to them in in the fat fashion of, hey, haven't you guys had enough of this? And they're like, no, Dad, I want to race some more. I'm like, good lord. No kidding. So um, we we. Still there? In 88, I was retired for a year. And a Canadian by the name of Chris Morgan, who I met years ago, talked me into coming up and doing some Canadian supercrosses. And um, back in 86, when I'd won the supercross champion, he and I became friends. And I came up and did some, uh, for Morgan Racing, did some arena crosses. I did some okay. in Regina, Saskatchewan. The-
0: the city that rhymes Uh, with fun sir i said regina the city that rhymes with fun
1: that's right yeah yeah because i was only like 17 18 and uh, i remember as funny as funny as it it could be uh there i am I, i won the supercross championship and uh these guys asked me to come up to canada and i had my cowboy boots on and I left Atlanta, and it's probably like 70 degrees or something. I get up there to Regina, and it's like 15 degrees. I had a short sleeve shirt on, cowboy boots. And uh, people were looking at me like I was crazy. But we had a great time up there, and I ended up doing Montreal. And, uh, I bet you had uh, some fun say, in Montreal. Yeah, yeah, I had a great time there. And we ended up doing the Supercross in Toronto. Racing back then, you know because the, Ross Peterson was the big guy up there, Canadian yeah, champion.
0: You must have come across him in the the Florida uh, Florida series oh, yeah. as well, no?
1: That's right. Yeah, no, I raced with him and uh, a lot of Canadians. You know, that would come down and do that.
0: Valencourt,
1: yeah, and Alan Dick and Valencourt, and uh, uh, the funny one. Uh, he wasn't from Canada, but he had the Labatt's Brewing sponsorship, Jeff Serwal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I could, I could sit here and name names for days, but all great people and, uh, big contribution to the growth of motocross
0: no doubt man well uh it it's, you've definitely uh, have uh, stories uh, to no end and uh and because of which i think we're we're definitely going to have to have you uh, on the show again to uh Recount some of those stories from from Europe and heading over to Japan and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, I, I really appreciate you giving me some time to uh, to, to uncover some uh, some cool stories from your career, uh, Keith. Uh, you're, you're a guy that uh, not enough uh, people in the sport know about, and uh, I'm glad I was able to have you on today and uh, and and chat about all that.
1: Well, thank you for calling, and yeah, I'm certainly open anytime. Give me a buzz.
0: Awesome, man. Well, uh, um, yeah, like I said, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Don't hang up just yet, but for podcast's sake, we'll cut it off right there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Big MX Podcast, brought to you by X-Brand Goggles. Be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.